In September, 20, uh, September 1620, a small ship called the Mayflower left Plymouth, England, carrying 102 passengers, an assortment of religious separatists seeking a new home where they could freely practice their faith and other individuals lured by the promise of prosperity and land ownership in the new world. And after a treacherous and uncomfortable crossing that lasted 66 days, they dropped anchor near the tip of Cape Cod, far north of their intended destination at the mouth of the Hudson River. One month later, the Mayflower crossed Massachusetts Bay, where the pilgrims, as they are now commonly known, began the work of establishing a village at Plymouth. Throughout that first brutal winter, most of the colonists remained on board the ship where they suffered from exposure, scurvy, and outbreaks of contagious disease. Only half of the Mayflower's original passengers and crew lived to see their first New England spring. In March, the remaining settlers moved ashore where they received an astonishing visit from the Abenaki Indian who greeted them in English. Several days later, he returned with another Native American, Squanto, a member of the Patuxet tribe who had been kidnapped by an English sea captain and sold into slavery before escaping to London and returning to his homeland on an exploratory expedition. Squanto taught the pilgrims, as you know. Weakened by malnutrition and illness, how to cultivate corn, extract, sa- extract, extract sap from maple trees, catch fish, in the rivers and avoid poisonous plants. He also helped the settlers forge an alliance with the Wapanog, a local tribe, which, whom, which, which would endure for more than 50 years. It was then in November of 1621, after the pilgrims' first corn harvest proved successful, that Governor William Bradford organized a celebratory feast and invited a group of the fledging colony's Native American allies, including the Wapanog chief Massasoit, now remembered as the Americans' first Thanksgiving, although the pilgrims themselves may not have used the term at that time, the festival lasted for three days. While no record exists of this historic banquet's exact menu, the pilgrim chronicler Edward Winslow wrote in his journal that Governor Bradford sent four men on a fowling mission in preparation for the event, and that the Wapanaw guests arrived bearing five deer. Historians have suggested that many of the dishes were likely prepared using traditional Native American spices and cooking methods. Because the pilgrims had no oven and the Mayflower sugar supply had dwindled by the fall of 1621, the meal did not feature pies, cakes, or desserts, which have become a hallmark of contemporary celebrations. This is a well-known account to you. I took that from history.com, but it is a story that you're well familiar with. And it is our national holiday of Thanksgiving, which was officially made a holiday almost two years, 200 years later, is based on this event that took place nearly 400 years ago. And there is much to be learned from history from time to time, to time but I want to point out a glaring connection between the pilgrims of 1621, and you and I today. The connection is this, that they were pilgrims, and we are pilgrims. Pilgrims are travelers who are awaiting their final destination to settle. 
They were physical pilgrims, having left their homeland in Holland and traveling by ship across the pond to the New World. But they were also spiritual pilgrims, as we are. And it is that connection of being spiritual pilgrims that connects us in a unique way. Robert McKenzie, a professor and chair of the Department of History at Wheaton College, does a helpful job of connecting these dots for us when he writes this. We read this in one of the most often quoted passages of, in, of Plymouth Plantation. In book one, Bradford recounts the immigrants' departure from Holland and their heart-wrenching parting from those in their congregation who would not be making the journey with them. Writing a decade later, he recalled the abundance of tears that was shed as the group said their goodbyes and left that goodly and pleasant city, which was leading Holland, which had been their resting place for nearly 12 years. They could find the resolve to press on, Bradford explained, drawing from the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews. Because they knew they were pilgrims and looked not much on those things, but lifted their eyes to the heavens, their dearest country, and thus quieted their spirits. He continues on saying, I am convinced that if we share this sense of pilgrimage, it would shape not only how we celebrate Thanksgiving, but also the way that we think about God's blessings throughout the year. Although he didn't speak specifically of the relation between pilgrimage and gratitude, C.S. Lewis wonderfully captured what I have in mind in my favorite passage from The Problem of Pain. Lewis observed that the settled happiness and security which we all desire, God withholds from us by the very nature of the world. But joy, pleasure, and merriment, he has scattered broadcast. We are never safe but we have plenty of fun and some ecstasy. It is not hard to see why. The security we crave would teach us to rest our hearts in this world and oppose an obstacle to our return to God. A few moments of happy love, a landscape, a symphony, a merry meeting with friends, a bath, that's weird, or a football match have no such tendency. Listen to this. Our Father refreshes us on the journey with some pleasant ends, but will not encourage us to mistake them for home. Currently, we reside in a fallen, temporary world that is characterized by ungratefulness and by selfishness. And though at times it seems impossible to have grateful hearts because of some inconvenient life situation or circumstance or or because it seems that the ungrateful people of the world are prevailing in every turn, we must settle our hearts and our thoughts on this fact as believers. This place, this earth is not our eternal residence. This world as we know it is not our eternal home. We are just passing through on this pilgrimage that God has granted us for his glory and for our good. Our sights are to be set on the place that is to come. And and because of the bliss, glory, and perfection and holiness of heaven, we are to live now with grateful hearts on this earth, our temporary home. Hebrews 12, 28 states, Therefore, since we received a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude, by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. 
Friends, with that as our promise, I want us this morning to see five explicit truths about heaven from the scriptures which demand for us a lifestyle of gratitude while living in the midst of an ungrateful world. The first explicit truth that I want you to note is this. It is that heaven is where Christ is. Heaven is where Christ is. Colossians chapter 3 verse 1 says this. It says, therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. The book of Colossians is is all about the supremacy and the superiority of Jesus Christ. The church at, at Colossae was under the attack of false teachers who were teaching errant views concerning the person and work of Christ. And so Paul takes this problem head on in this letter and we see in chapter 3 verse 1 the ultimate solution to the problems that they were facing in Colossae and that was to set their minds on things above, to keep seeking the things which are above. And it is in this solution that we, that we see this first truth about heaven stated so clearly. Heaven is where Christ is is. It is where he resides at the right hand of the Father. If you look again at Colossians 3, it says in verse 2, set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you will also be with him in glory. Christ is in heaven now and he is preparing a place for us as we know that to be true from John chapter 14. And he is currently there residing at the right hand of the Father. Why does it matter that heaven is where Christ is? Why does that matter? It matters because of who Christ is. A few years ago at the Shepherds Conference, the theme was We Preach Christ. And as the leader of the conference, Dr. John MacArthur was asked to write a statement concerning Christ, which turned out to be an excellent theological summary of the person and work of Christ to be used to headline that particular conference. It's this statement that clearly summarizes why it matters that Christ is in heaven because it emphasizes who he is. And this is very helpful for our purposes here this morning. Let me read that statement for you. It says this. We preach Christ, who is the eternal Son, one in nature, with the eternal Father and the eternal Spirit, the triune God, who is the creator and life giver, as well as the sustainer of the universe and all who live in it, who is the virgin Son of God and the Son of Man, fully divine and fully human, who is the one whose life on earth perfectly pleased God and whose righteousness is given to all who by grace through faith become one with him, who is the only acceptable sacrifice for sin that pleases God and whose death under divine judgment paid, <coughs> excuse me, paid in full the penalty for the sins of his people, providing for them for forgiveness and eternal life, who is alive, having been raised by the 
from the dead by the Father, validating his work of atonement and providing resurrection for the sanctification and glorification of the elect to bring them safely into his heavenly presence. He was at the Father's throne, interceding for all believers, who is God's chosen prophet, priest, and king, proclaiming truth, mediating for his church, and reigning over his kingdom forever, who will suddenly return from heaven to rapture his church, unleash judgment on the wicked, bring promised salvation to the Jews and the nations, and establish his millennial reign on the earth, who will, after that reign, destroy the universe, Finally, judge all sinners and send them to hell. Then create the new heavens and the new earth where he will dwell forever with his saints in glory, love, and joy. This is the Christ we preach. And I might also add that this is the Christ who is in heaven, whom we are to set our minds upon and whom we are to seek. Yes, heaven is going to be a place of joy and bliss and glory like like none we have ever known. And it is going to be eternal. But the ultimate and overwhelming reason that we are to anticipate heaven and set our minds on heaven is because it is where Christ is. Listen to these sobering words by John Piper concerning this truth. He states, Christ did not die to forgive sinners who go on treasuring anything above seeing and savoring God. And people who would be happy in heaven if Christ were not there will not be there. The gospel is not a way to get people to heaven. It is a way to get people to God. It is a way of overcoming every obstacle to everlasting joy in God. If we don't want God above all things, we have not yet been converted by the gospel. He continues with this soul-searching question. The critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you've ever had on earth, with all the food that you have ever liked and enjoyed, with all the leisure activities you have ever enjoyed, and all the natural beauties that you have ever saw, all the physical pleasures you have ever tasted, and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? Listen, friends, we can live with grateful hearts in this ungrateful world because we are going to the place where our Lord and Savior is, where he awaits, where the lover of our souls resides. In him, there is fullness of joy forevermore. See, Christ is the centerpiece of heaven And it is to be the centerpiece of our mind's focus during our pilgrimage here on this earth. And what does that do? That results for us in thankfulness. You see, when we set our minds on heaven where Christ is, we can be nothing but thankful. Regardless of the circumstances and the issues of life that we face. The second truth about heaven that demands a lifestyle of gratitude is this, that heaven is where we will be with Christ. It's not only where he is, but heaven is a place where we will be with Christ. Turn to Philippians chapter 1. 
Philippians chapter 1. Look at verse 21. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose, but I am hard pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Paul, in this passage, was dealing with an inward struggle, knowing that God had called him to a, a very specific task on this earth. But his desire was to depart Because that meant being with Christ in heaven. To be with him, that is to to be in his presence and to give him worship and love. To be with him indicates the, the relationship with him becoming full and becoming sight. To be with him, 1 John 3 tells us, is to be like him because we will see him as he is and he will transform us. To be with him means that our contentment will be made full. In his sermon, The Marriage Supper of the Lamb, Charles Spurgeon spoke to this when he said, My soul, you shall swim in happiness. You shall dive in seas of inconceivable inconceivable delight by reason of your union with Christ and your delight in him and his delight in you. I know no better idea of heaven than to be eternally content with Christ and Christ to be eternally content with me. And all this will happen within a very little time. Therefore, lay aside your cares. Dismiss your fears. Murmur no more. Such a destiny awaits you that you may well be content. Friends, we can be thankful, fulfilled, and content now because we know that that the fullest expression of contentment awaits us and will be found with us and will be found for us when we are with Christ. Flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6. Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Paul here is explaining the role of faith and anticipation of of our being with Christ in our everyday obedience. That we are going to, to put off this earthly tent, he says earlier in this passage. And that we are going to be at home with him. When we become absent from this tent. Look at verse 9. It says, therefore, as a result of this reality and and the anticipation of the future, the ultimate reality, we are to make it our aim and our ambition to be pleasing to Christ. And thankful hearts and lives bring the Lord great delight. As we anticipate our time in heaven with Christ, that eternal home, that we will be with him. 
we are compelled now to make it our aim in this life to please Christ in every respect. To think that one day we will get to spend eternity in the presence of our Lord and Savior who purchased our redemption, who, who loves us with an indescribable love and motivates us now to live humbly and gratefully on this earth regardless of the trials, regardless of the tragedies and the tribulations that we may endure for much of our lives. We can live in light of this reality and get past the bad circumstances and the annoyances and demonstrate gratitude. The third truth about heaven that I want you to note is this, and that is heaven is our eternal home. Heaven is our eternal home. And this is a truth that we saw briefly in the introduction about the pilgrims. They, in a sense, were wanderers, travelers who left all that they knew to pursue freedom. What kept them going physically on earth was, was the reality that they would one day, what would one day take place spiritually and physically in heaven. John 14, which I alluded to earlier, states this truth succinctly as Jesus says, Do not let your heart be troubled. <coughs> Believe in God, <clears throat> believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am there you may be also. And you may know the way where I am going. They knew... <clears throat> And we know, because Jesus said it, that there is an eternal home being prepared for us. A description of this home is given in Revelation 21 and, and 22. Turn over there with me. We'll spend a few minutes in Revelation 21 and 22, because this description is it's helpful for us. You know, as you think about the reality of heaven being our eternal home, you, you can think about your home now, and you can think about what invites you to be there. Now, I was just having this conversation earlier this morning that, that you know, how, how we surround ourselves in our homes and in our studies and different things, that affects us. You know, some people can just, are content to just reside in a very careless, abstract way, with all their stuff amok, but many people cannot do that. Many people need to have things in order for them to function, for them to, to do life as they need to do life. And, and so you can think about those in environments and, and how they invite you in, right? If you're going in to give yourself to a day of study, whatever you're studying, whatever you're doing, you want to go into a place that invites you to, to be there. Heaven is going to do that on an infinite level. It is going to be a place that, that invites us, that, that there is no other place on this planet we would rather be. Let's look at a description here in verse chapter 21. Look at the first five verses there in that chapter. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away. and There's no longer any sea. 
Then I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them. And they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, and there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he said, and he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write these things, these words which are faithful and true. Beginning then in verse 10, as we get that that spiritual perspective of heaven, what's going to take place there, we begin to get descriptions actually of, of the new Jerusalem then in verse 10 as he says, and he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. Then he goes on to describe what this new Jerusalem looks like. Turn to verse 22 as he says, and I saw no temple in it. For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple, and the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed. They will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it, nothing unclean, and no one who practices an abomination or lying shall ever come into it but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, And his bondservants will serve him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And there will no longer be any night, and they will not have need of the light or of a lamp or a light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. Friends, what a glorious and tremendous home this will be. God will be the center Provisions will be abundant. Beauty will be like un- anything, unlike anything we have ever seen on this earth. And it will be everlasting. No more wandering, no more unsettledness. The Old Testament saints lived with this hope of an eternal home and it led them in, in obedience, in worship, and in, in gratitude. In Hebrews chapter 11, we see this, verse 8, it says, by faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place where he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land dwelling in Tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Drop down to verse 13. 
All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. They obeyed God. Can you imagine that call from God to Abraham? What a, what a day that would have been. What a, what a strange occurrence that would have been. For, for God to tell Abraham, hey, leave everything you know and go to this land that I'm going to show you. And Abraham knew, <clears throat> as the writer of Hebrews states, that, that he was eventually looking for a city that had, has foundations whose, whose architect and builder is God, that, that it was even more than this physical land that he was going to. He knew through that calling that he would one day be in this city of God, this, this place where, where God alone reigns, where there is no more sickness, no more death, no more sin. All of those Old Testament saints, all of those who have come down through the ages, who know Christ, have this same longing in their souls to be in this eternal home that he has prepared for us forever and ever. You know, God has certainly given us happiness and pleasures on this earth. But there is a better country. There is a better place, and it is, friends, infinitely better. Do you long for this better country as the saints of old did? Is your mind set, fixed on that which is eternal? Is it longing for that eternal place then that helps you in this life to be grateful for everything that you've got, for the spiritual blessings, for the physical blessings? As you consider what is ahead eternally for you and I, Christian, our hearts should be overflowing with gratitude. In his book, One Minute After You Die, Erwin Lutzer talks about our preparation for heaven and what that is to look like here on earth when he says this, if we want to prepare for our final destination, we should begin to worship God here on earth. Our arrival in heaven will only be a continuation of what we have already begun. Praise is the language of heaven and the language of the faithful on earth. As we prepare to dwell in our eternal home, may thanksgiving and praise be the preeminent characteristics of our lives as believers. May the murmuring and the griping and the complaining continue to cease, continue to become less and less, and may our praise 
and thanksgiving to God for who he is and everything he has done continue to grow and grow. And one day when we cross that bridge from, from our lives here into eternal life in heaven with Christ, that praise will become perfect, infinitely greater, and it will be a continuation of the praise and the thanksgiving that we've given God as his people on this earth. The fourth truth about heaven that demands our gratitude is this. Heaven is where we will live free from sin. Heaven is where we will live free from sin. Revelation 21, which I already referenced, tells us that our eternal home will be free from sin. It says that in verse 4. It says, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death and there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Then verse 8, but the cowardly and the unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. We can conclude from those two statements in verse 4 and and verse 8 that there will not be sin in heaven. We know that as a whole from Scripture because we know that God is perfect and we know that he is holy and we know that no sin can abide in his presence and we understand that in terms of the gospel. That Christ had to come and live the perfect life and die a sacrificial death because of sin. Because sin cannot be tolerated by a holy God. And so this eternal home that we are headed to as God's people, as those whom he chose, whom he redeemed, whom he indwelled by his spirit, that we will one day be in his presence in this place without sin. I don't know about you, but, but apart from being with Christ... It is this truth that I am most looking forward to. We identify with the words of the Apostle Paul when he exclaims in Romans 7, Wretched man that I am, who will free me from this body of death? And then we see as we move through Romans 8 that this freedom from the presence of sin will come. You see, we've already been freed from the penalty of sin when we were justified, when we were declared righteous by the Father because of Christ's perfect sacrifice on the cross and and trusting in that sacrifice. And we have been freed from the power of sin through sanctification, being positionally set apart from sin, having the chains, the bondage of sin broken, and now progressively, day in and day out, being transformed into the image of Christ by the Spirit through the Word. But one day, One day, Romans 8 tells us that we will be completely free from the presence of sin as well. This is glorification, a new recreated body free from sinful flesh, never to die, never to mourn, Revelation 21 tells us, never to be in pain again. Romans 8 Verse 18, 
familiar words. Paul says, for I consider then that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the ancient, anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that, in, that the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption and to freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. We have hope in the final redemption of our bodies. If you're there with me, drop down to verse 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. These whom he called, he also justified. These whom he justified, he also glorified. This is what many consider the unbreakable chain of salvation. And notice our ultimate good in this text. It is to be conformed there in verse 29 to the image of his son, to be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. When does this happen? Notice the last link of that chain in verse 30. He also glorified. Friends, one day the sinful thoughts and motivations will be gone. Every bit of selfishness, every bit of unbelief, every bit of pride will be gone. The unwholesome words that come out of our mouths will be done away with for good. The sinful things that we do will be forever removed from us. What a powerful salvation this is. What a savior we have. And what a wonderful place that we get to live eternally in because of the selfless sacrifice of our Savior. We get to be free from sin. We are to be looking to and anticipating this place where righteousness dwells, 2 Peter 3 tells us. And because of this promise, this hope, this unbreakable chain of salvation, we can live thankfully on this earth. God's sovereign work in our lives, as Romans 8, 28 tells us, is for our good, which ultimately ends in our sinlessness. And as a result, believer, we can live with gratitude in every circumstance of our life. The last thing I want you to note, the fifth truth about heaven that I want you to see is this, heaven is where we will receive eternal reward. Heaven is where we will receive eternal reward. Turn back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I want you to see verse 10. We read verses eight through, or 6 through 9. 
So you look at verse 10. Therefore, or uh, for, we, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. The judgment seat of Christ that is mentioned in this text is a judgment for believers at the end of the age where their lives will be evaluated and rewards will either be given or withheld. Our motives, how we used our spiritual gifts, how we managed as stewards of God's stuff will all be evaluated and rewarded accordingly. 1 Corinthians 3, a couple chapters before, gives a little insight concerning how this will work. In verse 10, it says, For indeed, it's 1 Corinthians 3, 10, According to the grace of God which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. The fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which has been built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burnt up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Sometimes, you know, we get preoccupied and distracted by the temporary frustrations of serving the Lord on this earth. We lose sight of the fact that there is only one evaluation that truly matters, and that is by Christ. And there is one who sees the deepest motives of our hearts. There is only one reward that matters and it is given by Christ and it will ultimately be based on faithfulness as we build, as 1 Corinthians 3 talks about, as we use the gifts that we have been given to accomplish the purposes that God has given us in this life, to build and to edify the church, to build up the body of Christ we will receive reward. But as we waste opportunities for faithfulness, as we waste opportunities for stewardship, for building up, we will lose out on those rewards. But ultimately, we have one who is given that evaluation. You know, we see this in the life of the Apostle Paul. At the end of his life, in, in 2 Timothy Chapter 4, Paul talks about this. It's the end of his life. He's about, as church history tells us, to most likely be uh, beheaded. And he's at the very end of the rope. Verses 7 and 8, he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. These are some of his last recorded words 
uses words like fought and finished and kept. Those words can all be summarized as, as faithfulness. Paul lived a life of difficulty and hardship. As you read through the epistles, you know that. As you read through the book of Acts, you see how difficult his life is. But yet Paul continued to fight. And he finished the course faithfully. And through it all, he kept the faith. And he says that there will be laid up, there is laid up for him a crown of righteousness, that rewards will come, that it will all be worth it. As you trudge along in this life, through all the difficulties that life brings, through all the difficulties that relationships bring, that the church brings at times, as you continue to grow in your love for Christ and serve people, continue to minister to people, you're storing up rewards for yourself in heaven as you await that faithful day as Paul did. You can continue going on serving the Lord with gratitude in the midst of of your hardships, trials, and disappointments because eternal reward far outweighs both temporary success and disappointments. Your life is ultimately to be lived before an audience of one. Setting our sights on heaven demands our gratitude on earth. Nothing is more motivating than the hope of eternity. You're probably going to sit around the table here in a couple of weeks and talk about what you're grateful for. Talk about how it's been a good year. Talk about the different things that have happened. But none of those things that are temporary are going to be able to give you that eternal gratefulness that is necessary as a Christian. None of those things is, are going to compel your gratefulness to be at the level which it should be. It is only when you set your sights on the reality of who Christ is and the reality that heaven is waiting for you to eternally be with Christ for one day where you will no longer deal with sin, death, pain, sickness, disease, where you will receive eternal reward from your loving Lord. It is only then that your gratitude will be what it ought to be. I trust that your gratitude will be a lifestyle and not just a day because as believers, we are eternally grateful. We'll close with these encouraging words from, from George Sweeting. He said this, he said, Eternity is the grand climax of all history. It is the age to come when every person will acknowledge Jesus as Lord. Eternity will bring to this world all God intended for us. Sin will have been judged and banished. Rewards will have been presented. Life will continue with new vitality, meaning, and perfection. What an age that will be. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for our time together this morning. Thank you for the reality of heaven. Thank you for the reality of our eternal God residing in heaven. 
him being our chief reward. Father, we worship you because of that truth. Lord, I pray that as we go into this season, these various holidays that we love so much and celebrate so well, Lord, I pray that our minds will be set upon our eternity and not just on the temporary, that we'll be focused on our eternal Christ, our eternal home, and our life that waits for us there. Father, use that, compel us by that, motivate us by that to be, to be grateful through all the difficulties, demands, and challenges of this life. Lord, that we might be faithful ambassadors for you, faithful worshipers of you. We love you and praise you. Thank you for our time together this morning. In Christ's name, amen.